Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I'm running through the current version of my Sunday sermon. This is a quote I repeat often, and I repeat things so that you learn them. Tom Holland, in an interview, said this, Imagine you've got to write a story in which, for the first time, someone who suffers the excruciating death of a slave is going to be cast as being, in some way, part of the Creator God, who's fashioned everything, and he's got to be convincing, not just to people now, but for 2,000 years and across the whole span of the world. It's really an astonishing thing to have pulled off as a literary feat, and that four people did it is amazing. What does that literary feat have in common? Well, it has Jesus. And what about Jesus? Another favorite quote of mine, this is from Tim Keller's Making Sense of God. Particularly impressive to readers over the centuries has been that one writer, what one writer has called an, admir an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. It's Jonathan Edwards. That is, in him we see qualities and virtues we would ordinarily consider incompatible in the same person. We would never think they would be combined, but, because they are, they are strikingly beautiful. Jesus combines high majesty with the greatest humility. He joins the strongest commitment to justice with astonishing mercy and grace. And he reveals a transcendent self-sufficiency and yet entire trust in and reliance upon his heavenly Father. We are surprised to see tenderness without any weakness, boldness without harshness, humility without any uncertainty. Indeed, accompanied by a towering confidence, Readers can discover for themselves his unbending conviction, but complete approachability, his insistence on truth, but always bathed in love, his power without insensitivity, integrity without rigidity, passion without prejudice. Which Jesus? Because Jonathan Edwards is right, and Tim Keller articulates it well. And, and this is the compelling thing about Jesus. We, we meet him in the book of Revelation in chapter 6. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is talking about the same Jesus that we find in Matthew 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The current civil war in American evangelicalism is between the winsome and the hard. Some people think, well, Christianity should be about hard lines. Well, nobody draws a harder line than Jesus. Others say that Christianity should be about approachability and winsomeness. Well, nobody seems quite as winsome and, in fact, irresponsibly so as Jesus. Jesus exhibits both. Culturally, we preach soft but act hard. Now, I did a video a little while ago on this, and I used um, some um, a clip from 
from Chris Green, who is a uh, minister in the in sort of a charismatic Episcopal church, if you can think about what that must look like. And he made the point about the American Western. The, the Western is, is a quintessentially American contribution to um, art in the world. And, and the Western really revolves around sort of the, the good-bad man. It, it's a man who's rough, violent, sometimes um, sometimes an evil man or a bad man who does violence, but he does it in order that the moral people can enjoy order and peace and civility in the wake of his violence. And, and John Wayne was an actor who played that kind of character more than just about everybody and was pretty much known for it in the, in the great westerns of the 1950s and 60s. Probably the Western where this comes out most clearly is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, where there's Jimmy Stewart. Now, of course, you've got Jimmy Stewart, and today, not watching Jimmy Stewart and all the movies we do, the movie he's best known for is It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, George Bailey. Um, the Man Who Is Housing the Poor, George Bailey is the, the man for the little guy. In this, George Bailey is a lawyer who comes to town and he keeps getting brutalized and beat up by an outlaw. And, well, he wants to clean up the town, but he doesn't have the muscle to do it. So how will the town get cleaned up? Enter John Wayne. How does the good win in an evil world when the weak, the meek, the poor, and the few get trampled on by the strong, the loud, the rich, and the majority? This is something that's perpetually a question that the church wrestles with. If the church is the body of Christ, how does the church behave? Should the church have all sorts of accountability, keeping all of the sinners in line? Or should pastors be quivering masses of availability, always there to forgive and forget? How do we deal with this in the church? How is the church supposed to be? How do we manage this dynamic? Like the warrior Christ from whom heaven and earth flee, or like the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we've been looking at these sermons in the Gospel of Matthew. We have the Sermon on the Mount. What is righteousness? How it is received? What does it look like? What does it do? We saw all these parables in Matthew 13. Matthew 16 and 17 last week, we looked at the assumed mappings of the world and the transfiguration. And this week, we're going to look at chapter 18 as a whole. And again, many of these items are often taken individually, but Matthew packages them together as one united whole. And that united whole is supposed to communicate to us something about these this convergence of diverse excellencies in Christ, which needs to be lived out in the church, which is the body of Christ. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, one of the things that you notice with Jesus is the seeming contradiction between hierarchy and equality. Uh, no one 
no one sort of preaches equality better than Jesus, but Jesus at the same time describes himself as the son of man, which is up at the very top of the hierarchy as the son of God. And so with Jesus, you get, again, these, these diverse excellencies, you get both hierarchy and equality at the same time. Now, of course, for us, it's difficult for us to figure out, well, how do we deal with these contradictory things in the life of the community? Now, first of all, this verse has a challenge in it. I should probably change. There, yeah, that's better. This, this verse has a challenge in it because right away we sort of fill into the verse all our notions of children and childhood. And a lot of those notions have been shaped now over the last couple hundred years, a lot of romanticism about children, which very much wasn't in the first century. That doesn't mean that children weren't loved. Children, of course, were loved, but children were very often treated as slaves and workers. They had no social status nor power. They also understood that cherished children needed protection, attention, and discipline. And so we wonder, what aspect of child is Jesus pointing to? Now, he's pretty clear here in verse 4, takes the lowly position of a child. Those are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we wonder, well, how does this work? And then whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And a little bit earlier, he said, we have to become like these little children. And we assume he doesn't mean, um, you know, messing up our pants or, or, or not understanding how to move through the world. He's, he's talking about a quality that we're trying to figure out and is basically going to be laid out as we go. If anyone causes one of these little ones, and now right away, readers of this text have long noticed that there's a transition happen. First, we started talking about children, you know, uh, very young human beings that come into this world via procreation and we raise them, etc., etc. But that little children begins to take on a metaphorical sense and it also begins to bleed into the simple, the uninformed, the unsophisticated believers, the weak, the humble. If anyone causes one of these little ones, now this can include children, but it also includes simple, unsophisticated believers. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. And you say, now wait a minute. That isn't a quivering mass of availability. That's a really hard statement. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And so this is sort of heightened to say that, well, these things come into the world and they don't even necessarily come into the world intentionally. Uh, don't be the guy that causes these little ones either children in reality or unsophisticated believers, to stumble. You don't want to be that guy because, well, large millstone hung around the net and thrown into the ocean. You know, that, that's sort of a John Wayne move, isn't it? That's sort of the um, the good bad man in cinema taking the, the guilty person and doing something violent and throwing them into the sea. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire. Now, given the complete lack of Christians we see running around that are missing eyes and hands, um, what are we to imagine? Well, this could be hyperbole. We don't even see anyone in the gospel cutting off hands. Peter didn't get his tongue cut out for what he said and got named Satan for. But this obviously is something, it's a hyperbole that should draw attention to, you'd better take this very, very seriously because there's all sorts of stumbling blocks that are put in the way of children and the simple, don't be the one that does it because God is going to wreak vengeance on you. I thought God was supposed to be love. The most strident admonition given to protect the most vulnerable and the hyperbolic excess illustration to firm up the demand, woe to the world. This is the way it is in this world. Don't be the person through whom these stumbling blocks come. This is the strongest cautionary posture and a demand for absolute diligence and self-control. And I lost my mouse. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, you can feel the tension in that term. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always, faith, always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, this is one of these Bible verses that never gets read because this is sort of kicks up guardian angel mythology. And that's a huge subject that I'm not going to go into. But the point is that the lowly, the weak, the children even the unborn, have representatives in God's court and their case is being pleaded. And you don't want to have a case brought against you by one of their representatives in God's court because is God a beta male? Or something like the good bad man always played by John Wayne. Little ones can be children, but also simple, unsophisticated believers. God looks out for children and fools, the old saying goes. God knows how this world is, so those who think they can use their wealth, their power, their strength to advantage themselves over the simple, well, they're going to have to face someone, and there's not going to be any power that can avail them that will save them from his wrath. Jesus is very clear with this. This is not the kind of thing that... We like to think about, and, and certain churches sort of avoid this kind of talk altogether. Wait, wait, I thought Jesus, yeah, no, this is Jesus talking. The small have a representative before God's throne. But even those who want to see God as liberator, isn't this also a part of that story? You really can't have one side without the other. What do you think? If a man owns a owns hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not let the ninety-nine on the hill and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He's making the same point again. Now, of course, this is an extremely counterintuitive shepherding strategy because... Uh, 
if you go to the owner of the sheep and say, yeah, I left the 99 in the field and I went looking for the one and a wolf came and ate about 30. Yeah, that would be a problem. But you get the point that these people who are insignificant in the eyes of the world, God is watching. Better be careful. This, oh, this, um, another bad sentence. This reveals to us that your father in heaven is a risk taker. He goes out on a limb for the people that this world doesn't value at all and will do things that seem to defy common sense for the sake of love and even favorites. That terrifies us. I thought God was supposed to be fair. Yes, but it also seems he has favorites. He has chosen people and, well, as C.S. Lewis points out, they're usually chosen to suffer. Again, we would imagine that God should not pick and choose and have no favorites, but apparently he does. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, notice we were talking about children. Now we're talking about brothers and sisters. Now, this is relationship with peers. And remember, this is all put together in the same thing. This is a very famous passage, in fact. So I'm going to read through it first, and then we're going to sort of walk through it. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you won't. Um, you you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others among along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a tax collector or a pagan. Now we've gone from physical children to simple and vulnerable believers and now to brothers and sisters in Christ. The text is running the gamut of relationships within the church. And actually, just as these diverse excellencies sort of are like um, different personalities of Christ perfectly integrated within them, the body of Christ is also supposed to be such a thing. The everyday conflicts between us that make up the body life that is supposed to shape, transform, and redeem us into the sorts of people with, it, with the capacity to love as Christ does. Now, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Well, that's a tricky thing right away. And usually what we do when we find fault in someone is we talk to everyone else but them. That's, in, in fact, sort of protecting ourselves and trying to damage their relationship, their reputation. That's sort of reputational assassination. If you have a problem or think someone is out of bounds or in error has wronged you or somebody else, Jesus says, go to them secretly, quietly, just between the two of you. Don't attack their reputation. Go to them quietly. You first bring to them quietly and in secret to see if you can work out between the two of you. That's the best scenario. Now, maybe you're wrong and maybe they're right. So if they do not listen, take one or two others so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Maybe you're wrong and they're right and you need to check yourself by going now to another to see if this is just your thing or someone else is willing to put skin in the game and wade into the risky waters of personal conflict. Because again, once you go to someone else, now you get another opinion. And the other opinion might not be exactly like yours. And so, well, it just got a lot more complicated. Now, Jesus here is working with the Mosaic Code that tries to protect people from accusation. 
public accusation shouldn't be from just one person. Reputational assault is common in this troubled world, and it shouldn't be part of us. The two can then go in secret to the person of concern and start that process. What if that doesn't work? If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and then let the whole community decide. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, in other words, if the church agrees with you, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If the situation warrants, um, then the community must decide. The community will have the final say. Now, the pagans and tax collector thing is a little bit tricky. This is sort of a standard first century operating procedure that you treat such people as outsiders and traitors in order to sort of apply community pressure to bring them along into the way of the community. But that doesn't necessarily mean antagonism or hostility. Um, there's an open and hospitable posture, but not necessarily one of trust and fellowship. In other words, um, there are limits to what you should do with this. How does Jesus treat sinners and tax collectors? Well, he eats with them. He dines with them. He continues to build a relationship with them. It's not surprising that this story about the one and the many sheep in Luke 15 is tied to the parable of the prodigal son, where, well, the younger brother betrayed the community, and the community wanted to wall him off, but the father keeps looking, keeps hoping, keeps waiting. That's the posture. There's a lot of nuance here. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, Jesus places the church and its decisions in a very big category here. It's no small thing. Remember earlier about causing little ones simple and vulnerable to stumble? This is difficult for the church, and the church has certainly stumbled itself and caused many to stumble, and we who lead the church have to take this sort of thing very seriously. Now, with more power comes more responsibility. The church had better be a true representative of the heart of the Father to the world inside and out. All of those verses about hands cutting off and eyes getting gouged out, you can scale that up in terms of the church as well. And I'm sure on Judgment Day, the Lord will have a lot to say to church leaders, including myself. The church is the body of Christ, who is the Son of God, the prince who represents the Father to the world, who is somewhere between ignorant and rebellious. That's the world, somewhere between ignorant and rebellious, and this is the mission of the church. It's given great power, great responsibility, and when it fails, the consequences are great. Peter then pipes up. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, How many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? This is the misery portion of the sermon, because Peter brings in, well, here's a little bit reality, Jesus. Um, I know you've been walking around with us, but have you really paid attention to how we are? Have you really paid attention to how we treat one another, how we betray one another, how we abuse one another, how we hurt one another? Don't you think that a harder line is necessary 
Peter is definitely not team winsome here. And he's listening to Jesus and thinking, well, just how irresponsible is this idealist going to be? But now remember, it's really hard for us to keep these things in our head. Remember this convergence of divine excellencies? We usually just see Jesus as judge or Jesus as merciful. And we have a hard time sort of putting them together. People are like sheep with weapons. People hurt one another and take advantage of one another. Are you setting up the kingdom of suckers and victims? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Oh, the winsome is just flowing now. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, the man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, now that's usually 10,000 talents. This is an enormous amount of gold. If you look at talents in the scripture, this is, this is a kind of rant. This is the kind of debt that nation states build up. 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, duh, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all they have be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. Well, is that a good faith promise? Is it a possible promise? Doesn't seem so. The servant's master took pity on him and didn't just give him more time, didn't just relieve him on the interest, he cancels the debt. He takes on the debt, somebody else's debt. This is the deliverance portion. The master, in a sense, takes the hit for what the servant lost. Because remember, it's a debt. And let him go. This is, this is exactly what's wrong with the church. This is exactly why we don't have law and order. This is exactly the problem with the way the world is. This is totally responsible. How can you run a kingdom like this? How do we know that this debtor isn't simply a con artist, a lowlife, who doesn't deserve mercy, forgiveness, or anything else, much, le much less debt forgiveness? But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. That's about, you know, a third of a year's income. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Now, he just left, and you'd think after... Um, being forgiven the national debt of a small nation, a guy who owes him about three months' wages, he could say, I just, you wouldn't believe the debt I just got out from under. Hey, buddy, don't worry about it. Let's go for a drink together and let's, you know, let's drink up to the king. I doesn't do that. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. He says exactly what the other guy just finished saying. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Something that's reasonable. If he was sold into slavery, you'd probably get the debt paid off pretty quickly. Now, the test of worthiness is what one does with the power that one's been given. There's this possibly apocryphal Lincoln quote. 
Nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Do you use what you have to mirror your father in heaven, the great king? Well, what is he like? Well, look at everything that came before in the chapter. Look at everything that comes before in the book. Look at everything that comes in the Sermon on the Mount and, and Matthew 13, parables and the transfiguration. Look at all of that. Jesus is saying, this is our Father in heaven. I am the prince. He is the king. Like father, like son. Gratitude is both the source of happiness and a source of generosity. Now, this man has none of it. What to do now? Will Winsome continue? When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Uh-oh. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. That's all. I knew you couldn't pay it back. You just begged me. So I did it. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as high it on you? Shouldn't you have just said, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. Let's, let's go out for a drink together and celebrate the great mercy of the great king. Wouldn't that have been a great story? You didn't want that story, did you? In anger, the master handed him, um, in anger, this master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owes, which will never be. And then so suddenly, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is God good? Torture? Until he pays back all he owes, which will never happen? What kind of image of God do we get from this picture? We were just complaining that he's irresponsible. Now he's too draconian, one way or the other. We can't seem to make up our mind, can we? This is how your my heavenly father this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Is this winsome Jesus or is this hardline Jesus? Is this father? Is this the father as John Wayne? We are given time, space, opportunity to learn, to grow from childhood on, to grow up into the father as seen through the son. This admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies that continues to attract and compel us to grow into his likeness. There it all is. Tenderness without weakness, boldness without harassment, humility without uncertainty, accompanied by an towering confidence. Readers can discover themselves the unbending convictions but complete approachability, his insistence on truth but always bathed in love, his power without insensitivity, integrity without rigidity, passion without prejudice. Now we struggle. We do. We struggle to know what to do, even with the little relationships with each other. We struggle to reflect and embody exactly what all this is. We struggle to make it as real on earth as it is in heaven. But that is our prayer. And that's what we should do as we try to embody this together.